Welcome to the ICU podcast. I'm your host, Callie, a registered dietitian living with interstitial cystitis. Each week, I'll be diving into hot topics in the IC world, giving others a platform to share their story, and I may even reveal some of my favorite nutrition tips. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, let's get into the episode. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited for our guest today. I have Heather Florio with me. She is the CEO of Desert Harvest, the company that probably everybody in the IC community has heard of before. So welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Callie. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I know we're going to talk about a bunch of topics today, but first let's just start out with you know, an intro to you and how Desert Harvest got started as a company. Yeah, so I can kind of start, uh, I'll get into me a little bit, but Desert Harvest started in 1993 by my my parents, actually. My aunt had the interstitial cystitis. Um, and you can imagine in the early 90s, if you think things are bad now, <laughs> uh, things were really bad then. It was very much, you were lucky to be able to find a doctor that recognized it even as a disease, not something all in your head. And we were desperate. My aunt was living with us. We were looking for something that would help her. And my my mother went to some random natural products conference with my aunt, picked up some random bottle of aloe vera. And interestingly, not recommended, but took the entire bottle in one night. And But she slept through the night. And we're like, oh, wait a second. There, maybe there's something here with aloe vera. Um, and so my, my mother actually got with a friend of hers because it was, how can we concentrate this? How can we make this safe for long-term use? What is the optimal dosage? Let's figure all of this stuff out. And so in 1993, we developed the patented formula of desert harvest aloe vera that we still use today in all of our products. I took over in 2012. I have been involved since 1993 in the business in some way or another, helping and assisting. Obviously, it's a family business, so we all pitch in and jump in. But in 2012, I took over as CEO and began transitioning um, Desert Harvest and kind of refining and expanding the product line. Mm -hmm. And and you suffer from interstitial cystitis as well, right? I do. Um, I was diagnosed in 2016, actually. So even after I became CEO, um, it always makes you wonder, is there this whole genetic component, something that, you know, we we don't even know the etiology of IC, but it would be great to know for me because obviously my aunt had it. Now I have it. Um, I was diagnosed after hysterectomy. They did a cystoscopy while I was in surgery to look at my bladder and then found out I had lesions after the fact. So Got it. Got it. And so I'm sure you've been taking your aloe vera and, and it's helped you. Am I, am I right by saying that? <laughs> yes. I actually, it was kind of one of the greatest things was like afterwards, the doctor was all like, so we're going to refer you to urologist here and do this and do this. And I'm like, nah, I got this. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> And, and so, you know, I, I was able to, I'm able to maintain yes, with desert harvest products on a daily basis. Once I said I had that, I was like, oh yeah, we're good. 
gosh. I love it. I think that's so that's, that's funny, but honestly, like amazing that you were able to confidently, you know, say that for yourself and, and take control. Can you now get into the benefits of aloe vera, you know, in general, but then also specifically for IC? Yeah. So um, in, in, in specific, so desert harvest aloe vera is, you know, with aloe vera naturally, it has over 200 nutrients naturally in aloe, in the aloe vera plant, 75 of them active nutrients. So we're talking vitamins, minerals, amino acids, enzymes, active nutrients naturally in the aloe vera plant. So you're talking antifungals, a- antibacterials, uh, you know, a- um, you're going to have anti-inflammatory analgesic properties, so many nutrients just naturally in aloe vera. And I think the first use of it goes back, the documented use, it goes back, I think 10, over 10,000 years um, to, I think the first recorded use is in Egyptian times, ancient Egypt. And so it's been, it's been being used as an analgesic. And most people probably used it on a sunburn more than likely. So imagine when you put it on a sunburn, it's going to have that anti-inflammatory and analgesic action, especially if you're taking it directly from the plant. And so for us, we theorize, and we are actually um, at Wake Forest University right now doing research to prove this, but it's always been theorized that aloe vera is naturally also made up of ace manin, which is in, and other nutrients, which are all polysaccharides. Saccharides, their sugar chains, or in this case, what we would also call them as glycosaminoglycans. And so these are nutrients, sugar chain nutrients that are also in the, in the epithelial cell layer of the bladder, um, the gag layer of the bladder, or I'm sorry, we call it urothelial cell layer of the bladder. And so in that layer, it's theorized that the aloe vera is acting as a coating to the bladder. And that's why when you take it for the first three months, you're taking such high doses um, for those first three months because you're creating a buildup effect is obviously what we're theorizing. Now we're actually going to clinically prove this, Um, but it's always been theorized that because of aloe vera is made up of glycosamino glycans, it's acting as that protective coating that you're missing as an IC patient. So when things are passing through your bladder, they're not irritating. They're having that anti-inflammatory and analgesic action and nutrient action underneath that layer on the back end of things. And so that is, that is part of what we're uh, studying in the research. That's amazing. I love that your company just does all of this research because, you know, supplements really aren't, what's the word I'm looking for? Regulated. (laughs) Yes. Regulated. Oh my God. I'm sure you could talk about that for days and and we'll get into it. But I mean, I think the research is so essential, especially when working with a community like the IC community that already has trust issues with various treatment methods. So I think that the fact that you guys have that research happening and you have those, you know, research trials you've done in the past, supporting, Mm -hmm. you know, your claims in your product. So can you talk a little bit more about the, the research that you guys have done on the aloe in the past? 
Yeah. So we have um, done a variety of research over the years. So our first study was in 1995. Um, We did that at the Urology Wellness Center in Rockville, Maryland, in partnership with the University of Maryland. And in that study, we had 12 participants at that time. And in that study, we had an 87.5% response rate of some or complete relief of all interstitial cystitis symptoms with just taking our capsules. So you're talking frequency, burning, pain, nocturnia, all of that in, in, in combination responded in some way within the study for 87.5% of people. Now we theorize that the 12.5% that responded, that didn't respond, and that's kind of why we're trying to look at this further into this study is why did those patients not respond? Do they have other comorbidities? Were they misdiagnosed? Were there other things? We know that nothing is 100% foolproof, so we know we're not going to get to 100%. But we would really like to understand the the populations that benefit most from this, especially with IC being a diagnosis of exclusion. And so over the years, we have followed that up with case studies. In 2016, we did a survey of the the interstitial cystitis association sent out a survey to the entire their entire ic database of hundreds of thousands of ic patients um and in that study we got 660 respondents um, that responded back to us answering our survey questions and in that we had a 92 percent response rate now you have to understand the difference between our 1995 study and the survey however we think oh you know, everybody throws out these numbers, everything else like that. What we did in 1995 was had control measures. So that's completely different. We did a double blind placebo controlled study, which is to prove the efficacy that this isn't a placebo effect, that this is truly, there's measures, the patients don't know what they're getting, the doctors don't know what they're getting. It's a double blind procedure. Whereas when you do something like a survey, there is a a measure of error that can definitely happen within the survey. Um, And then the, the newest study that we're working on at Wake Forest right now in regards to the super strength aloe vera capsules and IC patients, we are trying to do a larger study. And that is because we are looking to do FDA drug approval potentially. Um, And so we are working with Wake Forest right now to do a larger study. So the first part will probably only have about 30 or so patients. And then the larger study will expand to hopefully anywhere is up to three to six sites with about a hundred patients at each. So we're going to do this in a larger and a larger setting for phase one, phase two, everything will get larger and larger. So we're even doing even more detailed testing at Wake Forest. We're trying to find out exactly how the aloe is interacting with the urothelial cell layer of the bladder. We're trying to see how it is, you know, we're, we, we have studied over the past 20 years, years, increasing the dosage for those that don't get an immediate response and kind of elevating from six capsules a day to nine capsules a day to 12 capsules a day. And we are finding that that works very well for those that take longer to respond. Maybe they need more of a buildup effect. 
Um, and so this will be the first time that we're actually studying this increased dosage in patients throughout. And of course, we're also going to be trying to look at the etiology of these patients because it's a great chance for us to capture data on IC patients in general um, to be able to look at the, the the etiology where this you know what is causing this in these patients. So maybe we can potentially find some commonalities. So there'll be all different types of tests and blood work and and baseline data and at the end of the study data that we'll be capturing throughout. We've also been doing this in conjunction in Rome in Italy as well where we've actually been looking at patients. These ones are interestingly differently in Europe. So the standards of diagnosis in the US and Europe are two completely different things. Um, in the US, I see as a diagnosis of exclusion. In Europe, you can only be diagnosed, you're, you're diagnosed via cystoscopy only which is the way we used to do things here. It's a very invasive test, is not very comfortable. And in a lot of cases, many people, their bladder looked just fine. So we were confused. And so that's what kind of led it to become a diagnosis of exclusion in the US. But in Europe still, it, it can only be diagnosed via cystoscopy with true bladder wall impact visualized. And so when that happens over there, they actually took the worst of the worst IC patients in our Rome study. So these are the patients that have tried everything, hydrodistensions, installations, every, nothing, drugs, nothing, nothing has worked. And we put them into this study in Rome with Dr. Maro Servigny at the Catholic University in Rome. And so we are hoping that those results, uh, COVID unfortunately has delayed us and we've had to add patients. We were hoping to have it by the end of the year, but it's looking like mid next year that we'll have all of the patients completed. Um, so that study has been going on for some time. So those results will come out sooner. And for those who don't know, Dr. Servigny, if you're in Europe, he is an amazing, one of the best. And he is actually the president of the ESSIC, which is the largest medical association for interstitial cystitis in the entire world, as far as not, not patient driven, but doctor driven. So mm -hmm. that's so interesting how it's different from, you know, over here in the States to Europe. And I find it very fascinating that they do require the cystoscopy. And I guess my question would be if the cystoscopy doesn't show anything, does that mean that you don't get a diagnosis of IC? In Europe, yes, that's exactly what that means. They actually theorize, and this goes to the theory of some of the research that's been being done at UCLA by Dr. Lenore Ackerman. She did a machine learning study where she actually looked, where she was, there. you know, for years we've been trying to phenotype this, subtype this, determine what subtypes actually truly exist. We've never been able to medically prove prove subtyping, but what we've had lots of theories and, and ideas that have been put out there. But Dr. Lenore Ackerman, she went to use at UCLA and she, with the consent of her patients, they would enroll in this study and a machine went through and learned different com distinct commonalities by all these different IC patients, looked at all their different comorbidities, um, other, other conditions that they might have, other things like that, to see where 
we might be able to find some commonalities. And she's actually the first one that has actually been able to find commonalities using your machine learning um, software, which will hopefully be able to be expanded that research and taken further um, and actually determine true subtyping. But interestingly enough, she found three groups, three distinct groups. She found a bladder centric group who had true bladder wall impact, their, their pain, everything was coming from their bladder. And then she had a second group, which was um, myofascial pain, muscular pain. So this is going to be that group that I, I think it was like over 80% resolved with pelvic floor physical therapy alone. And, and so because it was true muscular pelvic floor involvement. And then the third group was more of like, she kind of called it kind of like a neuralgia group that was just more nerve centric pain and the nerves that were running through the, the, the pelvic floor, the bladder, other things like that. And that's what was impacted. And so it was really interesting because she found these three distinct common groups and some had overlap, but many were distinctly in only one group. So that goes to the question when we are doing a diagnosis of exclusion, doctors know that we're just lumping everybody into one thing and that's going to lead to a high rate of misdiagnosis and mm -hmm. other things like that. And so until we find those commonalities, because if you look at these commonalities individually, then theoretically the bladder would respond, the bladder centric would respond best to the aloe vera. The myofascial is going to respond to the pelvic floor physical therapy the best. And the neuralgia component, um, this actually interestingly goes into, and we can talk about this. I don't know if you want to get into it just yet, but our CBD research and, and in regards to things that um, impact the nerves. There are other drugs that doctors um, prescribe. I know many do like my Mirabretric, things like that, uh, gabapentin, things like that, that really are meant to either impact nerves or, or, or stimulate things. Um, and so that's where that nerve group kind of goes. But. Got it. Got it. I, I feel like I definitely fall into that nerve group. Um, and, and the things that have helped me the most have been like calming my nervous system and working on, you know, stress management and, and things like that. And I haven't really responded to, you know, invasive procedures or treatment options. So I'm really, comforted by the fact that there is all of this research happening, you know, whether it's through Desert Harvest or UCLA or whoever's doing it. I just think as a community, that's so comforting to know that there is research happening to, to further our knowledge on this condition. And, you know, if we could find a definitive, you know, subtyping or phenotyping criteria, I think that would be really helpful and could move us forward so much in the in the future. So that's really great. So it sounds like for those three groups that Dr. Ackerman found that would it be the the bladder wall group would be the people with like the hunter's lesions and like the visible um, irritation on the cystoscopy or yes, it... where they have visual, like when you see either Hunter's lesions or you see a, a truly inflamed bladder. Um, when you go in there, you see true urothelial cell damage to the, that urothelial cell layer of the bladder. Then yeah, those are really the bladder centric, all of their pain, all of their, there is coming from their bladder, their pain, every, everything that they're feeling is coming from their bladder. 
Mm-hmm. And then the other two groups might be the people whose bladder looks completely normal on the cystoscopy, right? Yes, that 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 would be theoretically what you would think, right? That these people that have gone in over the years and say, I'm having frequency, I'm having pain, I'm having this, I'm having that, and thinking that it's their bladder that's impacted might not necessarily, but how do we create a standard? Right now, the tests are so invasive, they're not definitive. And, you know, we've, we've tried to come up with, you know, they tried to come up with a test, a urinalysis test that would help with diagnosis. But when you have, it's going to be almost impossible when you have all of these groups that are really in collectively into one thing that if you truly have that bladder wall impact and truly what they would call interstitial cystitis in that sense, then we've got to, we've got to be able to phenotype to be able to do proper research with the right groups of people to get the right steps of treatment. So I think that, that one of our, our hardest things right now is, is that we've got, you know, a muddied pool of people. And over the years, we have not come up with a definitive way to diagnose. And we don't even know the etiology I mean, it's going to be so critical to know the etiology to be able to treat, uh, you know, to actually make a true difference in IC patients, but you can't even get to the etiology if you can't even get the true patients necessarily versus others that might benefit from other treatments another way. So that's where, where subtyping and phenotyping is really going to be critical and, and for people not to have to waste money on treatments and options that aren't even going to necessarily benefit them. Oh yeah. I recently took a poll of my Instagram followers asking how much money they spend per month on their IC. And it was, I think it was about $500 per month on just all treatment across the board, you know, on average. And so that came out to be like $6,000 per year on treatments that we're not even sure are even going to work. So it's a lot of trial and error. And I think you know, this, this subtyping and this phenotyping can really help save people money. And I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I don't think that, um, Dr. Ackerman's like her, the results of that study were talked about as much as they should be. Mm -hmm. So this is a really great conversation to have because the listeners can, you know, maybe identify with one of those specific subtypes and maybe know, okay, physical therapy might be the right move for me, or maybe working on calming my nervous system might work best for me. And I I think that's really awesome that we're, we're making moves in that area. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, you know, the, one of those things where we really need to standardize what it standardize a way to be able to to figure out what group you're maybe more in. And I think hopefully the MAP project and other research projects that are going on would benefit that so that we can get, we can get the people the right treatment that they need and get them to the right place versus, well, try physical therapy over here, try, you know, aloe over here, try, you know, it, it, it's, it's definitely, and then when you throw people that have other comorbidities, other conditions on it that might overlap and create confusion, then, you know, that becomes a whole nother distinct things. And like I said, some of these groups overlap. So some of them might be in all three groups, but a lot of them were in one group. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So let's bring it back to the aloe. I mean, I know there's lots of aloe products on the market. You know, what what separates Desert Harvest aloe from the other competitors? Um, it is all in how we process it. I mean, really distinctly, I feel like way back in the day, I could go back and have my mother call this something other than just super strength aloe vera, because <laughs> to distinctly compare it to other aloe veras on the market and on the shelf, you can't do it because it's not, they're distinctly very different things. Desert Harvest is very conscious about how we process it, what we do it, what we are trying to create and maximize here. So that's what makes it very much different. It's not your aloe vera you go get on the shelf. One, most aloe veras on the market um, are made as digestive aids. Um, you will see the word digestive aid. You will see, you know, to help with bowels, things like that. And, and that's typically what aloe vera capsules were made for. And that's most of the aloe vera capsules you are going to find on the shelf because they have what's called anthroquinones in them. They're late, aloe vera naturally has this in it. And they're latex chemicals that can act as an irritant to the colon and have been proven in research long-term to be an irritant to the colon and be carcinogenic and cause liver damage and kidney damage. And so we're talking, so these, what was on the shelf was not meant to be for long-term use and in high doses. The FDA has approved these and okayed these to be on the shelf because they're under 10 parts per million of anthroquinones, but they're not meant to be taken on a long-term basis. So that's first and foremost. And then you get into how we process it, what we do with it, how we're trying to maximize the nutrients. So we grow in volcanic soil but specifically because we want to increase the nutrient content. Um, we are, so if you've ever seen the aloe leaves in the grocery store, you cut them off, they're laying there. So when you cut off an aloe, aloe leaf, it malic acid immediately begins to eat up at the nutrients in the aloe leaf. And as a result, within about six hours, six to eight hours, all of the nutrients are completely dead in an aloe leaf because they've all been eaten away by the malic acid. Um, and so it's, so if you've ever seen those ones in the grocery store, there's the, it's pure water at that point. So once the, all of the nutrients are gone, aloe vera is 97% water. So you're just eating or drinking expensive water at that point. So it's very critical for us within 20 minutes of us cutting off a leaf, we are in there preserving the nutrients um, on purpose. And we utilize the whole leaf. So if you open up an aloe leaf, you've got the gel, and then you've got a tiny thin yellow layer below, which is the anthroquinones. Um, that I had mentioned those latex chemicals. And then below that near the rind in the leaf itself, there's some of the best nutrients in the entire plant. So an easy, cheap way to get some of the nutrients, avoid the, the spending money on taking out the anthroquinones, but not a guaranteed foolproof you're gonna get 100% of the anthroquinones out is this, what you'll see a lot of the times on jars is inner leaf gel. So that is literally scraping above the anthroquinones, taking that gel and throwing the rest of the leaf away. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is not what we do. We process the entire leaf. And then we spend, um, we have a very not cheap process <laughs> that then 
filters, it's a filtration process. So we have a patented filtration process that filters out all of the anthraquinones, all of the insoluble fiber, and then freeze dries because heat treating kill, again, kills the nutrients. So any type of heat treating, a temperature just the wrong direction, you've lost your nutrients again. And so everything that we do throughout our patented process is all about maximizing the nutrients and getting rid of any of the negative components so that we can make it safe for long-term in high doses. Um, we don't add any fillers. There's a little bit of silica or silicone dioxide, which is like sand, it's an earth mineral that can naturally get in there during the free, it's part of the freeze drying process, um, but there's trace amounts. It's not anything that we add. Um, and then we put a little bit of calcium into each one of our aloe vera capsules to make it as alkaline as possible for the bladder. So to buffer out any leftover acidity that could potentially be in the aloe for the bladder. And then we put it into a vegan capsule and that is what we've been doing for gosh, 29 years now. So <laughs> I, that's an amazing process. And I'm like, so curious how you guys even discovered that process. And it was something that my mother literally, she was like, listen, I want this safe. I want it safe. And it was very important. And it was, it was very important for us to figure out how we could extract the anthraquinones because there, there are ways, there are plenty of ways we could pasteurize, we could do all kinds of stuff. There's easy ways to get rid of anthraquinones, but maintain the high nutrient content at the same time is still non-existent. We are the only ones that have this patented process that allows us to be able to do this. And so literally that was what was critical to us. So when my mother got with her chemist friend, it was very important to see how, you know, we could make this happen with removing the anthraquinones and maintaining the high nutrients at the same time. Desert Harvest has spent almost three decades meeting the relief needs of people suffering from urological, women's health, and sexual health issues, radiation oncology therapy, and more with the highest quality, scientifically studied natural origin supplements and skincare. All Desert Harvest aloe vera products are formulated specifically to maximize the benefits of the aloe leaf to capture the plant's fullest potential, are 100% anthraquinone-free, paraben-free, have no fillers, artificial ingredients, or artificial preservatives. Learn more at www.desertharvest.com or give them a call at 1-800-222-3901. All right, let's get back to the show. I think there's this big misconception in the IC community that all aloe products are the same. You know, you can go to the store and you can buy aloe juice or aloe water and you know, that's just not going to be safe for you. And I know I've been trying to make some educational videos um, on, you know, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. And people just don't know no. that this matters the way that it is processed matters. And you might be wasting your money on a product that's just expensive water, or you might be spending money on a product that's going to give you a laxative effect. I mean, last or two weeks ago, my boyfriend came home with an aloe vera juice, you know, with the, it looked yeah. really gross. It had like pulp in it and everything. Oh, okay. And I was like, 
that is going to make you feel awful. And he drank it anyway. And he was a couple hours later stuck on the toilet. And I gave him the old, I told you so. Mm -hmm. And he actually ran a marathon the next day. So he was like unwell, but um, it, it just goes to show, you know, a lot of people just don't understand the difference. So I think that is what separates you guys from every other company that is selling aloe right now. And I think a lot of the the way that it's aloe products are marketed can be confusing for the consumer. Yes. Um, the good news is, is, you know, Desert Harvest is really working hard right now with the FDA and other people to change that so that other people can't make claims um, that this does anything for interstitial cystitis utilizing our research. And so we are actually working on that right now with the FDA that will prohibit other aloe companies from making these types of claims that can be damaging to people and or duping people. So um, it was very important for us to make sure that 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 happened just so, you know, because it's, it's, it's human nature for us to go, okay, do I buy this $10 bottle of aloe vera off of Amazon or do I buy this $68 bottle from Desert Harvest? And and what is human nature going to say? It's going to say, oh, let's buy the $10 bottle first. And so it it's one of those things where we are constantly on a mission to educate and help people understand. And we're trying to help put things in place that make it possible for people to have a better understanding and education about what they're putting in their bodies. Um, and, and like you had said before, our supplement industry isn't regulated. Um, and, and it becomes an unfortunate thing because they're, they're working. The FDA is working on it. There is actually going to be legislation. Hopefully actually it's currently in Congress. That doesn't mean anything in this country, but hopefully it means that eventually we might have some standardization that would require registration of supplements and approval. Um, so very similar to in Canada right now, Health Canada. So you don't have to get what's called drug approval, but you do have to get approval in a sense to sell any supplement in Canada. And, and it's very similar to the drug approval process, but not exactly and not as comprehensive, but it's enough it's more than what we're doing here in the U.S. And it would be more of a protective measure to protect consumers from fraudulent products, fraudulent claims. I know that we, we've we had, I know, and I've mentioned it to you before, um, I this, this was not aloe vera capsules, this was aloe vera gelés, but there was a study done in 2016 by Bloomberg and they went, and just to give you an example of this industry, they went to CVS, Walgreens, Walmart. They just picked up all the aloe vera jellies off of the shelf and they took them to an independent third-party lab and they tested all of the aloe veras and they had no measurable levels of actual aloe vera in them. They all had what's called maltodextrin in them. And that is a filler that can act as um, mimic aloe vera on tests. 
And it's really actually just a sugar substitute um, is what mal maltodextrin is. And, it, and it's a filler, it's an additive, but on tests, it can actually, on initial tests, it can actually mimic aloe vera. You have to do more detailed, expensive testing to find out that it's not maltodextrin. And that's not required to bring something to market. So they're just gonna do the basic need to do tests there you go. We're done. And unfortunately, all of these people who had gone into these stores probably to buy this more than likely for a sunburn got no benefit. And if you're putting sugar on your body and then you're out in the sun again, what's going to happen? It's going to cause it to be worse. And so it, this is a disservice that unfortunately we're doing to the American public that hopefully um, legislation is coming to change that soon. And I am I am all for it. Um, yeah, because I think that we need transparency in this industry um, and consumer protection. Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like I I've heard you talk about that study before and it just blows my mind every time like that these companies think that they can just get away with that. Like it's absurd. So yeah, same. I'm really glad that that is, you know, happening and hopefully it's sooner rather than later. I know it takes a while for certain legislation to happen. So man, that is crazy. But yeah, now that we're kind of on the topic of that, like delay, can you talk about your, you know, your aloe products that aren't meant to be ingested, but are more like a topical product? Yeah, so we have a few that are very beneficial for IC patients. Um, we have a few things. Um, I'll go to, so you mentioned the aloe vera gel A. So we have the gel A and we have the glide. And we always get the question of kind of what is the difference between the two? So the gel A is going to be what you would typically put on a sunburn. This is as concentrated as you can get without the plant. Because obviously when we're talking about liquids, we're going to need some type of preservative. Um, and so we utilize a natural preservative process using radish root and other things like that. Um, um, to keep all of our products, our skincare products preserved. But the gel A is great because it's all natural pH balance. It can go anywhere on the body. So we have people that use it topically on their skin for Sjogren's, eczema, rosacea. It's approved by the National Eczema Association. There is no scent. This is a, a clear gel and it's, it's going to help with bringing moisture to the surface, helping just to make your skin healthy, helping keep your moisture there. So you can actually even use it as a lotion. You can use it under makeup, but another great way you can use it is vaginally on the, it is great to refrigerate for that kind of cooling effect and then put it on. We have people that put it on every time after they void because it's going to have that anti-inflammatory and analgesic action. It's going to help with making moisture down there. And especially um, we have people that use it for lichen sclerosis, lichen planus, things like that. Literally, you can use it anywhere on your skin. And then the glide, this is going to be an F that is an, the aloe glide is an FDA approved sexual lubricant and vaginal moisturizer, hundred percent natural. Again, we actually sell applicators so women can insert it vaginally on a regular basis, just to keep those tissues healthy and moist, especially if you have any type of atrophy um, after breast cancer, postmenopausal, 
any type of vaginal dryness atrophy down there, you can just insert it naturally. But the great part about this lubricant, this is probably one of only a few lubricants on the market that are isoosmolar. And that means that it mimics your own natural vaginal biome. So we talk always a lot about pH. Vagina needs to be very acidic, but it also needs to be isoosmolar. And isoosmolar is how fluid water flows in and out of the epithelial cell layer of your vagina. Now that is your protective barrier from yeast, bacteria, STIs. And if you lose that barrier, you've lost your barrier of protection. And most things that we introduce to that biome begin to dry it out, including most lubricants on the market. So just to give you an idea, a woman's uh, vagina, ideal osmolality of her vagina is 290. And just to give you an idea, you only want to be within roughly the, the World Health Organization suggests that you be no more than between 80 points higher or lower than that 290 to be considered isoosmolar. So for instance, Desert Harvest Alloglide is 308 for their osmolality and os every lubricant on the market is required wired to be an FDA approved medical device. And if it's not, they have not followed legal compliance. They just have not been caught yet. Um, <laughs> they are required. And as part of that requirement to get medical device certification, you are required to test your osmolality. So all lubricants should know their osmolality and you should be able to ask that of any lubricant on the market because that's going to, that that's required. They all have that information. And so just to give you an idea, many of the standard lubricants, I'm not going to name names that most of us know on the market, the World Health Organization did a study in 2015, 2016 for, of lubricants, because they work in third world countries with sex workers, things like that. And it was very important then to know about transmission of STIs, other things like that, how to prevent and lubricants were a big part in just maintaining vaginal health. And they found that many of the lubricants on the market these days are 9,000, 10,000 to that high osmolality ratings. Imagine what that's doing to your vaginal biome. It's destroying it. And so it's very, very critical um, that you know the osmolality of your product when you put that in. Um, the Alloglide is also the only sexual lubricant approved by the National Eczema Association. So again, you can get the idea of, of how gentle that is for you. We also have the Relevium, which is another topical. So that is going to be for your more serious pain. It's got 4% lidocaine in it and a patented blend of plant botanicals, including the aloe vera is also in there as the number two ingredient. The lidocaine is 4% lidocaine everything else is 96% natural. And it was developed for cancer patients undergoing radiation treatments. So it's for very complex pain. Radiation burns um, are much more complex than just a standard burn and they needed something a little bit more. And that's why this has got calendula, pod de arco, a variety of all meant to work in combination. But the aloe vera acts also as a carrier for the lidocaine to make it more systemic and long lasting. 
So typical lidocaine gel maybe lasts one to two hours when you put it on. This lasts about four to six hours on average, but, but you can reapply every three hours. Now you can use this again anywhere on the body, vaginally, anally. This was developed specifically so that it could be used for vaginal cancers, anal cancers, a lot of breast cancers because of the radiation treatments, hard to treat areas, things like that. So again, all natural. So you can use it for kind of that numbing effect. And we also, again, lichen sclerosis, lichen planus patients really like it as well. Um, we have a lot of people that put it on the vestibule right before sex to kind of- I was just going to say up. that. Yeah. I, I use it for vulvodynia and vestibulodynia, and I think it's really fantastic. I mean, it was recommended by my doctor because of that, that lidocaine and that aloe combination. I think it's, it's really helpful. And I actually have in the past tried 5% lidocaine, just, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's an ointment, but- that I experienced a lot of like burning on application, whereas your relievium has none of that, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's great. Many people have lidocaine sensitivity. It's good that you mentioned that the burning. Be careful before you put it down there because. If you have not tried lidocaine before, lidocaine something, it's always good to just test a product before you put it in your more sensitive, thinner tissues. So what we always recommend, FYI, and this actually goes for the aloe capsules too, if you're worried about an allergy, anything else like that, we recommend right here in the crook of your arm. Put it here, put some relievium on there for 20 minutes. See if you develop any redness or irritation. This is going to be thinner skin. So it's a good area to kind of test things before you put it down there or before you ingest it. So the aloe vera capsules, you can actually take them out of the capsule, add a little water, make a little paste, hold it there for 20 minutes and see if you develop any type of reaction. It's very, very minimal that, that people are allergic to aloe vera. I think it's like less than 1% of the world's population. So it's a very rare allergy, but if it's something you're worried about, or if you're worried about lidocaine sensitivity with relievium, test it right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, something I wanted to ask before when we were talking about the super strength aloe vera was I, I've observe people in the Facebook support groups talking about how they started the aloe and they had like nausea or maybe it made them flare up. And I know on your website, you guys talk about this die-off reaction. Am I saying that right? Yes, that, that is. It's a, called a Hertimer's reaction is kind of what they call it in the medical community, but a standard term, easier way to just say it is die-off reaction. And, and yes, there are a few things to think about. One is you mentioned stomach upset. That can be a little bit different. That could just be the high nutritional content. Supplementation, you're putting high amounts of nutrients in your body if they're in their pure good forms. You know, we go back to the industry regulation. But when you ingest a supplement, even me, I get stomach upset because of the high nutrient content. And so this is goes into how you take it when you take it, do you take it with food without food, it's not going to change the absorption or bioavailability of the aloe or the nutrients whatsoever. So you can put it in food, you can take it with or without food. You like if you if you do um, have problems taking capsules, you can put it in food, water, whatever. It's not going to change that whatsoever. And so we do really recommend that. And we do recommend 
if you start to have some stomach upset and the food doesn't necessarily do it, you can also buffer with calcium. It could be that kind of helps buffer out some of that kind of stomach upset that can happen. And that's where we recommend the calcium and vitamin D3 specifically for that. However, always make sure you're doing equal parts magnesium when you're starting to add calcium supplementation. What's in the aloe capsules itself is minimal. You're talking 1200 milligrams a day is the recommended daily value of calcium your body should just be getting. And you're talking 20 milligrams per capsule in the aloe. So you're not talking very much calcium intake with what's in the capsules. But once you start supplementing and adding more calcium to your diet, you'll always want to have equal parts magnesium to prevent that constipating effect because they have to be in balance in your body to function correctly. Yeah. It's so essential to know that. I mean, nobody wants to be constipated, but especially with IC that can trigger a bladder flare as well. Yeah, it just makes we've all been there. I think more uncomfortable down there. Who wants that? (laughs) Uh huh. Uh huh. So, but then um, the die-off reaction you mentioned. So, over the past twenty-nine years, we've been documenting this and keeping an eye. It's about less than three percent of the people that take aloe vera have this happen to them. But essentially, again, we go back to that high nutritional content your body may already be nutritionally deficient if you're trying uh, trying to eliminate things out of your diet you're you're not eating cuz you're not feeling well you know there there's all these different things can already be happening to your body that is making it nutritionally deficient let alone when you start to add high nutrition content so what happens is part of that high nutritional content is, 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 is trying to flush out dead cells. So this is a die off reaction. So essentially what it's doing is healthier cells are being created and it's flushing out the dead ones. Um, so typically when this happens for someone, it's like maybe one or two weeks at most. Um, obviously if, at last, if you were taking the aloe and it lasted for longer than that, you need to go talk to your doctor about an allergy. There could be something else going on. You definitely need to talk with your doctor in this situation because it could be something else. It could be related to something else. But if you think it's related to the aloe, and interestingly enough, this comes in all varying forms for different people. Some people will be like, I'm feeling stomach upset. I got a headache. I've got loose stools. I've got an increase in my symptoms. It really is really interesting when a die-off effect happens, it can affect all, it can make you feel cruddy in all different parts of your body. And especially if you have an existing condition, it can make that condition feel worse for a little bit. So you're talking about one or two weeks and we always tell people, and of course it's hard for an IC patient, increase your water intake because you really need to flush those out by drinking more water. You're flushing those out faster. You're getting past that. And then you're moving on to the the beneficial period. And like I said, this, and it's hard to ask someone to, yeah, let's go ahead. Let's flare. I'd love to flare for one or two weeks. Sounds great. You know, nobody wants that, but we do ask people to stick through it if you can, because there is another side to this. And we've had so many people, they'll be like, they'll be like, nope, can't do it. 
And then they'll go back to the aloe and they say, I wish I would have done this, you know, you know, a year ago, a month ago, you know, I wish I would have stuck with it. And because they get to that other side and they see, but realistically, no more than one or two weeks. And, and if it's feeling really bad, you need to talk to your doctor because something else could be going on. may have nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. Got it. That is a really good point. So push through, you know, if you can during that time. And in terms of the protocol that you recommend, so it's six capsules in the first month. And then what happens after that? So we recommend for the first month. Well, okay. So this is just the first three months. You, we start with the, the six capsules a day. If you don't respond to the six capsules a day after the first month, the second month, you can up to nine, the third month, you can up to 12. And then after, but some people do just fine on the six a day for the three months. It just depends. You know your body the best, listen to it. If you're not getting to your level of relief with the six, um, the great news is, is because we've taken out the anthraquinones, the insoluble fiber, you know, we've, we removed all of the negative components. It, it really, I always akin it to like eating apples, you know, uh, we've, we've had some people take crazy amounts of these per day. Um, you don't need to do that. I mean, we've, we've had people take like 30 capsules a day. You don't need to do that, but we, we have found that upping that dose. And that's kind of why we're doing this in the study. Cause we want to show the benefit of those that do do it, that don't do that, um, to show that benefit of the escalation dosage protocol for some people. And then by the end of that third month, you begin to maintenance dose down. So we have many people that maintain on one to three capsules a day is kind of the average that I see patients typically maintain on, but you don't want to do that all at once because you've created this wonderful buildup effect. So whatever dosage you're at, you want to take away one capsule a week. So let's say you're at the highest dose, you're at 12. So for a week, take 11, if you do good you know, go down to 10. So each week only take away a capsule and do it for a whole week. Now, if you feel any of your symptoms return, you go back to the previous week's dosage. That will be your maintenance dose. Um, and so everybody's maintenance dose is a little bit different because essentially what you want to do is create keep the integrity of that glycosaminoglycan layer. The three, first three months is really kind of a buildup period. And then the rest of it's just about maintaining. You don't need as much to maintain. Yeah. And, you know, that can be an overwhelming thing to take, you know, 12 capsules yes. <laughs> per day for, you know, a certain period of time. But when you think about where it can get you and how much it can help you, I mean, for at least a month, it's worth trying, right? Yes, it is. It is. And I mean, for that first month, you're doing six capsules a day. I mean, we do have some people that respond almost immediately. It just depends on the person and how they are with their body. But if you're good, we have found that if you are going to respond, especially if you follow the dosage protocol, if you are going to respond, you're going to respond within those first three months. If you do not see a response within those first three months and you follow the dosage protocol, you are going to fall in that 12.5% that do not respond to the aloe vera, mm -hmm. um, whether that 
why that is, we don't know whether that's misdiagnosis, whether that's that's other comorbidity factors factoring in, we don't know. But we do know that if you are going to respond, you're going to respond within those first three months. And there's no point to take it after that if you follow the dosage protocol and you do not respond. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, are, are there any other products that can really help people with IC that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few things that I can mention right off the top of my head. One, when to non-supplement options, definitely um, take a look at the book that mind you, this is Ingrid Harm Hernandez from Duke university. Um, I'm only a small part of the book. She's going to be on the next episode. So everyone's going to hear about her. Oh, perfect. I know. So the brainchild. So we do have that book for sale and it goes great in conjunction with our easy magic pelvic wands. These are made of a borosilic glass. So you don't have to worry about them chipping, things like that. But the great part of that is, is that they're non-porous. And so you don't have to worry about bacteria, yeast, anything else like that, or worry about they're really easy to clean and maintain without any problem. And that's really going to help you if you have muscles that you need to release versus strengthen. These are, this is for trigger point muscle release. Um, And you can also do it to kind of help if you have vaginismus and kind of that dilator kind of work as well. And we also recommend soul source um, dilators to help that kind of dilator stuff. And then back to supplements, we also do have the, well, separate of supplements actually first, I guess I should mention the aloe fresh whites, um, which are great to take on the go. They're great if you have the easy magic wand for cleaning. They're great for rebalancing pH after sex, after voiding, anything else. I, if I have had something, I take them wherever I go and, and they're great. If let's say I had a no, no food or a no, no glass of wine, um, (laughs) (laughs) with the girls, I can utilize these. I also, also, one of the things I also forgot to mention is if you do have a flare, we have, we all have lives. We, we eat things or drink things. Sometimes we're not supposed to we can, you know, have stressful times in our lives. Life can be stressful and we can flare as a result. And, and so even I do, I'll pop a few extra capsules when that happens, I'll pop an extra dose. Um, so that's also something you can do along the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some of the other products that we do have are that help along the way. One is quercetin. That is is a natural antihistamine. So this is going to be like your hydroxyzine, Benadryl, other things like that. Those are all antihistamines. This is a natural flavonoid antihistamine, quercetin is. Um, and so this is an alternative option that can be taken in conjunction. And many times people that don't get just their level of relief with the aloe capsules, adding quercetin as the first option has always been for that kind of that mast cell activation component. If you have that component to your IC, um, we have found that that's a big responder in combination with the aloe vera. If we feel like you need both, um, for that mass activation. 
cell activation component. Number two would probably be the CBD capsules. Um, so we have been studying those. Those are a new product for us. We started those in 2020. Um, we've been studying them at McGill University, specifically for different mechanisms of pain. We first went to the University of Colorado, where we were able to show that it's 25% more bioavailable or systemic in the body than any other CBD product out on the market, just because of that aloe acting as a carrier to make it more systemic and long lasting. And then we went to McGill University because they have one of the foremost pain research centers in the world. We wanted to understand which mechanisms of pain actually function for. So we have been doing some of the first of its kind revolutionary work with the human body, understanding the function of the mechanism of CBD in the human body. That'll be published later this year. With chronic bladder pain in our chronic bladder pain model, we had an 83% reduction of bladder pain after 24 hours. So this is another great addition. Um, we have, we did find that the types of pain that responded the best were neuralgia type pain. Um, so not muscular pain, more of the nerves, the nerve pain. So like nerve injury pain. So if you have the, the back injuries, things like that, we, when we did that in a study, um, we had a 54% reduction in 24 hours with, with taking our CBD capsules. Um, the, chemotherapy pain had a similar to the bladder pain. It was 80%, I think it is. So we we did surgical pain, chemotherapy pain, and we're getting ready to now start women's health pain models. So we're going to be looking at things like endometriosis, uterine fibroids, menstrual pain, PCOS. We wanted to understand what other types of female pain this would also function for. So that will be round two for us um, in our next phase. But right now, thus far, we, we, we know some of these mechanisms and we now know the mechanism in the human body for CBD. So that's also a great option that's out there. We do have a, you know, a whole host of other supplements. Um, we have a multivitamin, which is low acid, which means we have taken out, buffered out the acidity of the vitamin C. We've removed the B6. Um, we use the methylated forms of the B9 and the B12, which are easier for your body to process. Those are the same in both our B complex and our multivitamin. Um, we have a probiotic that was specifically chosen because many um, IC patients have other comorbidities, other autoimmune disorders. And so we recommend this probiotic if you need a probiotic. Not everybody needs a probiotic. It became very trendy for everybody in the world to start popping probiotics. And sometimes it actually, if you don't need it, you're actually doing more damage than you are benefit because realistically, it's only if your biome, your gut biome needs resetting, needs, needs to, you know, healthier fauna and flora and everything else like that. The microbiome needs to be reset. That's where probiotics um, really come in and be beneficial. We use the Bifidobacterium infantis strain because it's the best at not inflicting 
inflaming autoimmune conditions, which a lot of other probiotic strains have shown in research to inflame. And the Bifidobacterium infantis is shown in studies not to inflame autoimmune conditions. So that's why we chose that one. We have the calcium glycerophosphate, which is going to be to reduce acidity in foods. Some people like that. Some people like the calcium and vitamin D better because it's more about reducing acidity in the body, which some people find much more beneficial with the calcium carbonate and the vitamin D3 combination. So those two are kind of available out there, but go back to that conversation of magnesium. We also do have a magnesium oxide form of magnesium, which is all just about, we choose that form. It's not the best form for magnesium deficiency supplementation. It's more about redirecting water to the bowel and keeping bowels healthy. There, It is obviously magnesium. So there is some supplementation benefits, but we chose it specifically for its ability to redirect water to the bowel just to keep the bowels healthy and moving, um, especially if you're taking opioids or other things, calcium, other things that are going to induce constipation. Um, you can kind of tirate your dose and talk with your doctor about adjusting it outside of even what's on the bottle based on, on your stools, whether they're too loose, not loose enough. You, you can kind of gauge that and talk with your doctor. So mm -hmm. I think that's it. I'm sure I <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's many more that we're yeah. forgetting, but I think that is, you know, adequate in, in reviewing all of those things. And if someone that is listening to this wants to purchase any of the things you just mentioned, can you tell them where they can find those products? Yeah, they definitely, um, they can go to our website at desertharvest.com to purchase any of our products. You can also um, give us a call, especially if you have questions. We have a great customer service team. It's just 800-222-3901. And we are more than happy to answer questions. All of our customer service agents are very well knowledgeable, very well trained, and love to talk to the people that call us. Amazing. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or, you know, want the listeners to know before we wrap this up? I think that's about it. I'm sure we could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> we could. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and giving us the facts about aloe vera and just like clearing up a lot of misconceptions and the myths that are out there. So thank you so much, Heather, for coming on. Thank you again for having me, Kelly. It was fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to make sure you're subscribed and following along. If you enjoyed this episode specifically, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell me exactly what you enjoyed about the episode. For more content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Callie K Nutrition.